Howdy, folks. This is Scott Parker, and you're listening to another episode of the ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast. And with me, as always, is the man who gets more credit for this show being what it is now than anybody else on planet Earth, Mr. Phil Circus, our Shucks. producer. Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm good. And he's all the way downtown. He ain't messing around. He's the vaultmeister. It's Mr. Joe Travers, Woo! ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Joe. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and uh, I cannot believe our guest. And there's a whole story behind why he's here. But the short version of the story, folks, is that we're here promoting a brand new album that's uh, about to come out called Zappa 80 Mud Club and Munich or München, if you live in Germany. And we were saying sort of divine intervention because this really happened in a weird way. And Joe and David are going to tell you about it. But the drummer for the Zappa band, 1980, whose work is featured extensively on this album, Mr. David Logeman. Yes. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. David, I feel like I want to know how the hell did David Logeman end up auditioning for Frank Zappa? That's like the first question I want to know. Me too. (laughs) How did it all happen? (laughs) Well, I, I was a really big fan of Frank's when I was in high school. One of my favorite albums was Overnight Sensation. And growing up in Illinois, it was really hard to make a living playing music. And I always prayed that I would have the opportunity to do that. And I just kind of felt led to come out to California. And a lot of great things happened. Uh, I'm a believer in Jesus. And I always prayed that the right doors would open at the right time for me. I never really tried to plan anything ahead. I didn't have any master organized thought about how I was going to go about this. And I had already started kind of recording and and playing with some people in town and in LA. And I had recorded a fusion album with Jakob Magnuson, who was like this uh, jazz keyboard player, fusion keyboard player on Warner Brothers. And also I had previously played with Mingle Lewis. He had an album called Flight Never Ending that was uh, on CBS and he uh, used to be the percussionist in Santana. So it, it just so happens that the keyboard player in that band was also in L.A. And we were in contact with each other. And his roommate at the time was a drummer. Now, I don't know. I can't remember his name. But it was this drummer that heard that Frank was looking for a new guy, a new drummer. So he gave me uh, Bennett Glotzer's number. And Bennett was managing Frank. And of course, Bennett, you know, gave me all these questions, you know, how long you've been playing? Do you have any experience? And I told him about the records and he goes, okay, that's good enough. You know, he gave me the address for Joe's Garage. He set up a a time for me to go down. And at that time, you know, I had no idea whatsoever that I would even have a remote shot. I just went down because I was a fan and I think, okay, wow, I'm going to meet one of my heroes. And I thought it would be Pretty much, that's it. I heard through the grapevine that Frank had this reputation of a lot of drummers going through the revolving door of, of, of the Zappa band. So I didn't have any illusions about it at all. So I get down there and the band is set up on a stage. There's a drum set already set up. Well, that and, was this um, at a rehearsal hall? Yeah, it was Joe's Garage. I guess that's what they called it. I mean, it was his rehearsal hall. and. Okay. um there was probably six or seven guys there. And um, Frank immediately said, well, thanks for coming down. You know, today is Big Ears Day. 
And he just pointed the band and said, hit it. And the guy started playing and I could tell it was odd meter uh, immediately. So I went to the back of the line. I just thought I need a little time to figure this out. So Frank handed the drumsticks to the first guy and he went up there and froze because he couldn't figure out where one was. And Frank said, stop the band. Hey, thanks for coming down. Good to see you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Well, by that time, I figured out it was 13-8. So by the time it got to me, I, I knew where one was and I was able to play with the band. And there was one other guy, Steve Houghton from the a Akiyoshi uh, Lute Tobacco and Big Band. I've heard his And name. he was able to do it too. So he said, okay, you two guys, you know, come back and I you know, want to have you on another day. So I thought, wow, you know, it just seemed so strange. And the other guys, unfortunately, weren't able to do it. And he just dismissed them very quickly. You know, he wasn't mean about it, but very cut and dried. And there was not a lot of uh, pleasantries or grace about the way he did it, but it wasn't mean. And I just thought, wow. So I came back the next day and there was a whole bunch more guys. You know, Mark Cranny from... Gino Vanelli's band, uh, Casey Shirell from John Luponi's band, David Garibaldi from Tower of Power. I mean, I, I was just shocked. And there was a ton of guys there. And Frank said, okay, today is rock day because I want a guy that is able to play rock. Well, growing up in Illinois, that's what I played, you know, primarily. I did some blues, I did some jazz, whatever. But I was in a touring band called Sky King. And we, you know, did the, the tours with Ario Speedwagon and Sticks and all those kind of bands. So I thought, okay. And so I went up, you know, early on, I grabbed the sticks and, and I can play that stuff no matter what's going on. So he said, okay, yeah, sounds good. You go over here. Well, you know, the other guys, you know, fantastic players, but they didn't seem to have that authentic rock thing, I guess, that Frank was looking for. So during that particular time, I was the only one that he said, can you come back again? I said, yeah. So he set up another time for me to come back came back a third time and there was a whole bunch of guys there again. I heard guys were flying in from New York and it was just, it was crazy. So he said, okay, today's reading day. You got to know how to read. He asked me, he said, do you know how to read? And I said, yeah, I know how to read. So he gets me up there. The band's not there. At least they're not playing right, right now. And he puts up the black page and he said, start from the top. And I get about maybe two lines through it. And I stop and he goes, what's wrong? And I said, well, this is a very difficult piece. I would have to kind of sit with this a little bit and figure it out and I'll come back and play it tomorrow. He goes, oh, no, no, you got to play it today. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I think I would have to have some time with this. So he said, well, if you can't sight read this, you can't read. And I said, well, yeah, I can. I can read. And he had a stack of music right by him. So I picked up the next chart and I put it up there and I played it. And he smiled and he goes, okay, all right, stand over there. So I stand over there and, uh, you know, there's, you know, a couple other guys, you know, seemed to do okay. And I sat through it all and he comes over to me and he, and he goes, do you even want this gig? He said, you haven't said two words to me. I said, are you offering me the gig? He goes, no, not yet. <laughs> so then he says, well, look, it's, it's going to come down to you and one other guy, there's one other guy that that's a pretty good reader. He said, but I want to take it in full rehearsals and I want to spend the whole day with each one of you before I decide. 
And then he goes, oh, by the way, Vinnie Kelly, you just sight read the black page. And I said, I don't believe that for a second. And of course, I find out later that Vinnie had memorized it from the Terry Bazio, you know, live thing that, that Terry had done. So anyway, I knew, I knew that wasn't the case. <laughs> so he rented out a big soundstage in Hollywood. And um, he had, you know, his whole crew there, sound gear. He said, bring your, you know, I want you to bring your drums. He said, I want this first guy, Sinclair Lott, to play on Saturday. I'm going to have you come up and play all day Sunday, and then I'll make a decision. And I said, okay. So I'm sitting around my house Saturday afternoon, and Frank calls. And I said, wow, hey, what's going on? He goes, can you get down here to the, uh, to the soundstage? I said, yeah. He says, well, Sinclair snapped like a twig. He said, we took a break. Sinclair left, and he never came back. We're taking his drums off the stage right now. Come on down and bring your drums. So I come on down. I bring my drums. And we play a new song. He has me listen to it. He says, write a chart for this. So we play the song. And I said, okay. I write out a chart. He looks at it. He goes, oh, okay. So then he starts naming songs for me to play with the band. And I said, I don't know that song. And, you know, he kept asking me, well, what is it of mine that you know? Do you know anything of mine? I said, I know everything off of Overnight Sensation. That's one of my favorite records. So he said, okay. So he picks a song and we, and we play it. We were there for hours and hours. At the end, he goes, he says, you know, I think this is going to work. And uh, I'd like to hire you to come out. You know, we, we don't have much time. I pay $1,000 a week. That's it. Doesn't matter if you're in the band 10 years or 10 days. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing some sessions. I, you know, I make that in a day or two. And he goes, doesn't make any difference. He said, you have to let me know tonight. I'm going to call you. And it's yes or no. And he left. So I asked the guys in the band, what's it like? You know, is it worth doing? You know, what do you guys think? And, you know, so they gave me their opinion. And they said, oh, by the way, don't ask for any more money. That's how Kelly Uta got fired because he asked for more money right before the tour. And uh, I said, okay, all right. So I thought about it and I thought, man, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity, how could I ever have something like this? It was a dream come true, a prayer answered. And I felt like God was opening this door for a special reason. So I said, yes. And that's how I got the gig. Wow. Oh my God. Amazing. Oh my goodness. That is such a fantastic story. It really is. And Frank told me later, he went through 54 guys. I asked him. How many did you go through? 54 guys. And he said, you, you know, you just had the right combination of things that I was looking for. Because I said, I don't play anything like Kelly Uta. And he goes, I, he said, I'm not looking yeah. for that. So I just felt like God prepared me for it with all the stuff that, you know, I had done previously. And I was just being at the right place at the right time. And, uh, and it was great. You know, I love playing with Frank. Yeah, it's funny that Frank would ask you what you knew of his material because, you know, the repertoire that you wound up doing was largely yet another batch of brand new songs. You know, that was 1980 was, of course, the year of I think of it as the year of You Are What You Is, because that's when most of that album started to take shape on the road in 1980. So it's really fascinating, you know, this kind of behind the scenes look. Well, the other thing that was that was very interesting to me, uh, which I found out then, is that Frank would like to tour with material. 
and then record it. You know, most artists that I ever worked with, they would record the stuff first and then they would go out and, and tour it. So to me, that was very unique and very interesting. It gave me the opportunity. He gave me a lot of artistic freedom to come up with drum feels and parts that obviously he had to approve them. And then he would have me write charts on it. And um, I, I got a lot more artistic freedom than I thought. I thought he would dictate everything to me, but he, but he didn't. He, di he dictated certain things, but he gave me a lot of artistic freedom. And it was great. I find that the timing of you being in the band, David, was perfect because there was a shift in styles of music at that time in the industry, you know, new wave. And Frank was listening a lot to that style of music. He was listening to, you know, Lena Lovich and Devo and the B-52s. And yeah. there was just a, a major shift, you know, obviously with you guys playing the Mud Club, that was one of his favorite clubs and there was a scene happening, right? Yeah. And he definitely was taking that in account. And I think that he was looking for someone a little bit more solid, a little bit more straightforward and a real, th and you had a really thick groove. I remember that's something to that effect was what Arthur Barrow said. He really appreciated the deep groove that you had and the sound that you had. And that was something that I think was like, as Gail Zappa would say, a left turn at Wednesday for his musical style, right? <laughs> and he was definitely interested in uh, in that. And and although he ended up going back with Vinny at the end of 1980 or whatever, and he kind of just like went into that direction, it was like your timing was perfect for at that point, I think. Yeah, yeah. Musically speaking. And boy, did you get to experience... Uh, a lot during the, your time with him. I mean, it was a matter of months, right? I mean, you joined in early in the year and you rehearsed, you went on the road and you went on a very large tour, Yeah. right? So talk about that for a second. Like you were in the States, you went to Europe. I mean, it was, it must've been really, really amazing being in that group and, and seeing what you saw. Well, it was a real shock to me because you know, I had done very small gigs, you know, I was working primarily with fusion players at the time. So we're, we were playing small clubs and to go on tour, I, I was shocked about, I mean, I knew he was big. I knew he was popular, but you know, to go, you know, let's say in town, we played the sports arena in town. I mean, I, I would go see the Clippers play there, you know, and then to be there and have that many people be interested in what he was doing. And for me and the band to be able to perform for just tens of thousands of people, it was a trip. I mean, it was so much fun. And I don't know exactly what it was like before. And I've talked to a few of the guys that played in the band afterwards. But the thing, the other thing that was really strange for me was that he had decided, at least this is what he said, that he wanted to basically segue through every song and that we would be playing they probably were 90 minute to hundred minute shows, sometimes longer. And he had decided these little prelude, musical preludes that would be before each one of these songs. And we basically would play and, and not really stop much. You know, maybe some shows he did stop on certain occasions and we never knew when that, that would be. But there were also times when he didn't hardly say anything. We would be playing and playing and playing. And that was a complete shock to me 
I was able to do it, but good thing I was in good shape too. Cause man, I felt like I was half drummer, half athlete to be able to do this stuff, but, but it was sure was fun. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I, I've often thought about this, um, how much stamina you had to have to be in the band, because, you know, as a drummer, of course, as you guys know, you're always, you're constantly moving. You're constantly, you know, up there doing it. And I don't know how you play, how anybody plays for, you know, a hundred minutes at a stretch. Like what is essentially like playing one long song for a hundred minutes. It always struck me as like this Herculean thing that you have to do every night. Uh, yeah, I, I had never experienced anything like that before. And I guess I was prepared because I was able to do it. And, uh, and, and to do that every single night, basically, you know, for months on end was really something. And um, the other thing that, that I'll have to add that he loved to do, he wouldn't just keep the same order of songs. He would change the order almost on a nightly basis. And we as a band had to remember, well, what was the prelude to this particular song? Because if you didn't know that, you wouldn't be able to segue to the proper, the next song. That's why, you know, we, instead of the mothers of invention, we called ourselves the brothers of retention <laughs> because of all the material we had to learn and yeah. the fact we had to remember all this stuff. And I think when I got the gig with him, I think I learned like 50 to 60 songs in 10 days before we did our first date. That was a lot. Ooh. Gosh, what a, it all turns into one song at that point. It's like, <laughs> how do you, <laughs> how do you differentiate all of them? David, I know this was a little while ago, but do you have any recollections of the Mud Club show? Um, I remember it just being a little bit of a shock to go from a 32 foot stage with plenty of room and the monitor system, you know, being fantastic and being able to just be tailored to me because when we're on, you know, the bigger concert stages, you know, I wouldn't really necessarily hear Arthur's mix or I wouldn't hear Tommy's right. mix, even though we were on risers right next to each other but in the mud club. I mean, we were so close together that it took a, a minute to be able to adjust to that. And, you know, it was a smaller stage and um, I didn't know what to expect. The crowd was definitely a different crowd. They were rowdier. Mm -hmm. They definitely were like wanting to, uh, if you call it dancing, I, you know, they were <laughs> jumping up and down yeah. and around and they yeah. loved to try to get up on stage and, and stage dive off, which Frank <laughs> had this, this bodyguard Smothers and Smothers did not like that. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was definitely a different vibe at the Mud Club than anything mm -hmm. else we did on the U.S. tour. So those are kind of the aspects of it. I don't remember the show all that much. I'll have to refresh my memory when I hear the actual recording, but it was fun. I remember that. That's great. <laughs> and they were filming at the Mud Club. They were filming. I didn't know that. So weren't they? They filmed a little bit at the Mud Club, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they, yeah. The Torpedo Twins did. Yeah. The, it'll, we'll be seeing some of that, I hope. Oh, that'd oh, yeah. be great. I'd love yeah. to see that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It really is a remarkable document because, see, what I tend to think of when I think of the different Zappa bands and the different eras, they're almost always defined for me. In fact, they probably are always defined for me by whoever the drummer was, because that tends to be 
what I think of as the feel of that band, you know, like the, the kind of vibe that the drumming has, you know, there's like, you know, you've got the Bozio era and you've got the Vinny era, you know, and right. what you did was incredibly unique because, you know, that's a rip roaring rock and roll band right there. Yes. I'm really glad that you're being um, kind of showcased on the new album that's coming out because uh, you deserve the accolades and attention for what you did. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's interesting because I remember when I was preserving the master tapes of all these shows, you know, I, I didn't preserve them or, or document them or transfer them with the intention of this release. I was preserving them because they need to be. That was the whole point. You know, it's just like, I wanted to hear what they sounded like and I want to make sure that this stuff is, digitized uh you know for the ages and see how the tapes are doing and when i listened to them i was just like wow these shows are so great you know and i could see that frank was prioritizing the mud club show for a possible release because you can see the work tapes that he had from the master i could see all the different sequence choices he was making you know he was crafting bits of it like for a side of a record and he was side one, side two. I could see all that. And then the Munich show is uh, historical because it's the first digital live to two-track stereo recording of Frank Zappa live ever. And I was like, wow, these are both the same band from the same tour, two historical excursions, really, playing a small little club like the Mud Club and then having this first digital recording at a huge place which ended up being the last show of that band, of that tour. And it just made sense to put them together and present them in, in a package. I just, I just felt like the band, the, the shows were smoking. David sounds amazing on it. The band sounds great. The performances are killer. The sound quality is great. It's all very listenable and great. And I thought this is going to be something really nice. And uh, I think, <laughs> this should lead us now into the story. Should I get into the story now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. please. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, there's been so many times in the past with me being Vaultmeister and working closely with Gail that we would have all of these synchronistic moments happen, like just tons and tons of occasions where like I would pull out a tape from the vault and we would be listening to it and I'd look at the date and it would say March whatever 19 you know 67 and here it was march 2007 that we were listening to it and i'm like holy shit gail can you believe like that that was completely like you know we didn't plan that at all you know so <laughs> yeah. just things like that would happen well that's what happened with david so so here i am i'm in the middle of you know in the heat i am like putting this package together with the munich and the mud club show doing all the restoration, preparing it for mastering, you know, getting all the liner notes together, this and that and the other thing. And I go to bed, you know, every time I usually, you know, when I go to bed, I always open up my laptop and I, you know, always just do a little internet searching before I fall asleep. And that will usually include going to eBay and, you know, like looking at used records or used drum gear or something. And I go to Craigslist and I see this ad for a snare drum and it's for a black beauty, a beautiful, you know, black beauty Ludwig snare drum. And it's definitely old. It's definitely from the time period that I like, which is the mid seventies. Cause it has 
for all you drum geeks out there. It has the blue and olive pointy badge, which always tells you it's between 1972 and 1978 or something like that. So anyway, I see this drum and it says, um, drum for sale, black beauty, mid seventies, whatever used with Frank Zappa call, you know, call this number, whatever. And I was like, used with Frank Zappa. What? And I knew that it was, I knew that the drum was from the seventies. So I'm thinking, all right, who in the seventies would be selling this drum? Like Ralph didn't play Ludwig, but maybe he had a Ludwig drum and he's selling it. Chester played Ludwig, but Chester lives in Nashville. Maybe this drum was used by Chester and someone owned it and is now selling it. You know? So I'm like, I don't know. So I call up Ruth Underwood, Ruth Underwood and I are talking. I was like, do you think that Ralph is like, selling this drum on craigslist and she's like i don't know that's really really weird i said isn't it i said i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna answer the ad so i answered the ad i said my name is joe and i'm interested in the drum how is this drum affiliated with frank zappa would love to hear back from you thank you very much you know and that's all i said <laughs> i get this response back and it's like hello joe I was in Frank Zappa's band. The drum was used in the recording sessions for Your You Is, Tinseltown Rebellion. And my, my name's David, <laughs> David Logaman. And I'm like, holy, I can't believe it. I was like, David Logaman. So I, of course, answered right back immediately. I was like, David Logaman. I'm like screaming, you know, through capital letters on the email. I'm like, my name's Joe Travers. I'm the Vaultmeister. Please don't sell the drum and get in touch with me and call me right away. Like, don't do anything. So it took him a, maybe like a day or two. And I was just like, holy shit, did he get my, did he get this? Like, I, I was just getting ready to send another one, like emergency alert, like red alert. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm at Joe's garage working and the phone rang because I gave him my number and he called and uh, and I answered the phone and I go, David. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, you know, it was just so great. He was so sweet. And uh, he was like, he was like, I know who you are. And I go, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, please tell me you did not sell the drum. And he did not sell the drum. Thank God. And um I purchased the drum and we uh, met and uh, had dinner and it was really wonderful. And he came and sat in with the Zappa band when we played at the uh, big potato. And it was so wonderful to see him play. And he's, uh, he's the greatest. And uh, I'm just so glad that the drum is now with me. And here he is on the Zappa cast. Yeah. You know, what was funny about all that was that when we were talking about what the plan for the next couple of releases is because we, you know, we do Zappacast episodes for these album releases. Um, we were talking about, wouldn't it be interesting to find David and see if he would be interested in, remember we were talking about that. Yes. And then right after that, <laughs> this happens. <laughs> We're getting the CD package, Joe, right? And then we're getting each show is going to be issued on vinyl, including uh, a limited colored vinyl edition. So, um, yeah, so those are those are coming and it's going to be another expensive <laughs> month for Frank fans. Everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, especially if you want to collect the black vinyl and the colored vinyl together. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I do it. I do it. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I don't have any room anymore, but I do it. You know. <laughs> so <laughs> I was looking up, by the way, some of the statistics for the tour. The band uh, toured from March 25th to July 3rd, 1980, played 70 shows in 62 cities, 12 countries, number of different songs that were played, 47, average show length, 110 minutes. So there you go. Wow. I mean, you know, 110 minutes. So you're playing a medley, you know, for two hours a night times uh, 70 shows. That's athletic. That is athletic. <laughs> wow. Well, let me tell you a story about another thing that I distinctly remember from the American tour. We were in San Francisco and maybe Joe, maybe, you know, the venue. I don't know if it was Cow Palace. I can't remember where we were playing, but I remember it for <laughs> a couple of different reasons. This was one of the nights when Frank changed the order of the songs. And Angelie Dunbar was there. And I think Terry Bazio was there as well. And I heard before we played that they were in the audience. And I said, oh, I definitely want to meet them. I want to meet those guys. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we'll have them come back after the show. So we're playing the show. And the way the band configuration was, uh, the drums were in the back part of the stage in the center. Tommy Mars was on keys stage left on a riser. And then Arthur Barrow was stage right uh, of me on another riser. So we're playing the show. And because he had changed the order, Tommy made a mistake and he played the wrong prelude. Well, by playing the wrong prelude, Ike Willis was in front. He's stage left in the front. Ike starts playing what should have been the next song for that particular prelude. So Tommy and, and Ike are playing one thing, and I'm thinking, that's not, that's not right. That's the wrong prelude. So Arthur and I and Ray White are playing the correct one. Anyway, Frank did not like that. This is the only time this ever happened. He turned around and stopped the band. And he said, somebody fucked up. I don't know who it was, but we're going to keep doing it until we get it right. And he was looking directly at me, and I was so embarrassed. My face turned red and I'm looking at Tommy and Tommy shrugging his shoulders. Mm. And of course, you know, we started up and do it again. But I was so angry about that, that I was put in such a bad light that I, I played what I thought was the greatest show of the whole tour. I was on fire after that. So after the show, that's what Ainsley and, and Terry said. Man, you were so great. You know, it was something I'll never forget. I've always been very meticulous about my preparation for a show, even before Frank and, and after I was out of the Zappa band. But boy, that was a lesson, you know, to, to really listen and to be adjustable. And if a mistake is made, you know, hopefully you can cover over it and not have the leader say, stop the band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that might that might have been Berkeley. Was that Berkeley, California? It, it might have been Berkeley. Scott Tunis has a story about that show. So he, yeah. he a young Scott Tunis was there. Yeah, he oh. saw that. Yeah. Yeah, he saw that happen. He loved it. He thought it was hilarious. I mean, it's a good thing things like that is entertaining instead of it. I mean, it must be embarrassing if you're the person that, you know, possibly caused the uh the train wreck on stage in a Frank Zappa band. Of course, you get, you know, you're under so much pressure. But, you know, the good news is, is that, that you know, people get off on the, some of that stuff. So it's, it's, maybe Frank was proving to Ainsley and Terry, see, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> <laughs> right. And after the show, you know, I immediately 
go up to Frank to tell him that wasn't my fault. And before I could even say anything, he said, I don't want to hear it. It doesn't matter. Mm. And he just, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't even let me make any kind of explanation. And I just thought, okay, you know, yeah, it's his band, you know? Right. And we just moved on. (laughs) (laughs) And it was never mentioned again. No, that's right. Wow. Yeah. I just looked it up. Yeah. Berkeley community theater. Okay. Are, okay. are there tapes of that, Joe? I have to ask. Oh, uh, yeah, I think there are. Yeah, see, that that tour was mostly one-inch A-track, and then when Vinny came back for Fall 80, they had a 24-track machine along with the A-track, and then when Chad joined, that was when Frank got the uh, remote, the Beach Boys remote truck. Dave, how about that? Yeah. And uh, two 24-track machines in there, and then everything was being recorded with no tape gaps between reels, which was actually very nice. I want to ask Dave about, you know, we were talking about that thick groove, right? I know that at that time in 1980, you had a Ludwig drum set. Yeah. It was a single headed drum set. So you had concert toms. Yeah. Uh, not for the kick drum, but for the, uh, well, you might've even taken the front head off the kick. I don't even know, but no, okay. I didn't. But uh, but the tom-toms were single-headed. They were fairly large. I think you were using pinstripes and or uh, Ludwig silver dots at that time because I've seen the, the footage and pictures. But you seem to really tune everything very, very low. Is that true? Yes, I did. That was kind of um, a result of a lot of the rock stuff that I had done previously. And when I was experimenting with tuning and trying to get, you know, the biggest sound possible, you know, I guess it makes sense in terms of just pure physics, because when you tune a head lower like that, you get way more vibration. And it also then just has a richer tone. And with having no bottom heads on, that was for sheer volume and projection. So between the two of tuning the heads very low and having no bottom heads on them, I was able to play with guys that had Marshall stacks and really loud gear and, and loud sound systems in you know smaller clubs. So yeah, that was on purpose. And the yeah. snare drum specifically, were you you were really detuning that thing and were you muffling it? Uh, a little bit of muffling. Uh, I would usually do that with gaff tape and some kind of uh, either paper towels or, or cloth. I didn't like the internal mufflers at all because they they couldn't really be adjusted the way I liked. And um, yeah, I had a Ludwig super sensitive that I had w- since I was a kid. And then um, I had the yeah. Black Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would just tune the head roll kind of like pretty low, pretty thuddy. Pretty low and pretty thuddy. And I would always hit the two and four with uh, a rim shot. You know, I was hitting the rim and the head at the same time just to be as loud and forceful mm-hmm. as possible. And because of all the rock stuff, I was really good at being able to do that consistently. And that also gave us some dynamics whenever I would do a fill or some kind of uh, roll because then the fills and the rolls and stuff weren't going to necessarily be rim shots. And I, I like the way it created uh, dynamics within my playing. And do you continue to have that kind of protocol when you play now? Do you tune like that now or does it depend on who you're playing with? Well, I do, but from a different perspective because the reason you found out about me selling the drum is that I got rid of all my drum kits. At this point in my career, 
I don't want to really be hauling around a whole bunch of stuff. I've got the touring thing down to the to the point where I just have the production have a drum kit there for me. I order it in advance. And when I play locally, I've got a Ludwig kit, but it's a little Questlove kit. Oh, yeah. And the Questlove kit, I think it's a 18-inch, maybe, maybe even a 16-inch bass drum. It's a 10 and a 13 tom and a piccolo snare. It's a 14 snare, but very thin. So I tune those low just, you know, because I don't want it to sound necessarily like a jazz kit. You know, I still want it to sound pretty open and um, and round, you know, so I still tune them low. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I have some drum questions I want to add on before we move away from it, because You Are What You Is is one of my top played albums of any artist of all time. It's I'm I'm going to keep bugging Joe to do some kind of <laughs> insane ultra box for that set one day. Yes, please. I love your drumming. It's like tasteful and precise and sub- your roles are sublime. Oh, thank you. And I'm not a drummer, but are you using rototoms for those high fills? And also, do you use timbales? Because I hear a lot of that, especially when you're doing like a reggae groove with Frank. Yes, uh, I think it was uh, maybe a six, six inch and eight inch rototoms. They were off to my left, just above my hi-hat. And then, yeah, there was at least one tambali, maybe two. I think it was just one. It was two. Was two? Yeah, because of the pictures, we can see it. Yeah, I always thought it was possibly one, but it, you had two. And they were on your left underneath your hi-hat. Yes. And then you had four syndromes, and those were Franks, right? Yes. Yeah. Bozio used those too. And yeah. Vinny used them too. Yeah. So those wow. syndromes were, yeah, house syndromes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I had never used any electronics before that. And I really don't use much, you know, since then either. I'm just, I guess I'm old school and I like the feel and the sound of a natural wood shell drum. Sure. I'm the same way. You know, what's interesting, David, is that you were the first drummer, I think, to record in the Utility Muffin Research Kitchen once it was up and running for Frank. I know that Missing Persons recorded their first EP at the studio, but Frank was on the road and they were using that project to work out the bugs in the studio. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, wow. but you were the first guy to come in after the tour with, uh, I guess it would have been Pinsky and Bob yeah. Stone and coach and you guys were the first first to record in the house studio i didn't know that wow do you have any recollections of uh recording those songs in the studio oh absolutely absolutely um a lot of that stuff we had performed you know before Mm -hmm. uh on tour but he brought in some new stuff and uh so that was fun Uh, another technical thing that maybe drummers out there would be interested in I had used uh, Remo uh, heads quite a bit because I liked them. I liked the pen stripes. I liked the coat, especially recording. I usually used coated ambassadors. Well, a Remo uh, rep had contacted me and they had this prototype, what they called synthetic calf skin. And I used mm-hmm. those on every session for You Are What You Is, oh. which I think also gave it a very unique sound. The drawback was I don't think they ever went into production and and were ever distributed because they would have a tendency to uh, flake, mm. and I would have to replace them almost 
either after every session or at least every couple of days, but they just kept giving them to me because I loved the way they sounded. They really had a beautiful, warm, resonant sound. And I thought, wow, this is the probably the closest thing to calf skin that I would have. The very first drum set I had when I was eight years old was given to me by a friend of my dad's and they were all calfskin heads. Mm. And I love the sound of them. But the problem was, of course, as most drummers know, it, you know, with humidity or if they got wet or whatever, it, you know, it totally screwed up the tuning and, and the uh, tension on the head. So that's a, a unique thing that uh, maybe most people would know about the heads I use for that record. That's great. That that would have been the early versions of fiber skin, remote yeah, fiber yeah. skins. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you used fiber skins to record that album. A prototype. I think they were prototypes of that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh my uh, god! I'm, I'm I'm having my drum nerd moments right now. <laughs> <laughs> we we have long been talking about doing a series on Frank's drummers. So I, you know. For my money, this is where it kicks off, baby. <laughs> yeah, really. So, David, what are you doing these days? Well, it's interesting. I think I told you this, Joe, at our dinner. There was one night we were in Europe somewhere. I don't know if we were in Paris or London, but I was watching all the people come in. And a lot of people don't realize that Frank Zappa was even more famous and bigger in Europe than he was in the United States. And I'm seeing, you know, this 20,000 seat auditorium fill up. And I just kid, I was kidding him because he was standing by me just for a second. And I said, hey, you're not paying me enough. I said, look at all these people. And he laughed. And then he said, what you got to do, he says, you got to figure out a way to be not just a sideman, but to be in a band and be a band member and hopefully be in a position to either book the band or manage the band. And I said, yeah, that would be great. And, you know, that ended up being prophetic because that's the absolute door that God opened for me years later. Um, after I left, Frank, I did a bunch of studio work and, you know, we're touring with different people. I got in a divorce because my ex-wife got into an addiction kind of situation. And I was basically a single parent with a young son. So I was praying about it and I was thinking, yeah, you know, doing sessions during the day was fine, but I, I wasn't really making enough money. And I was thinking I need a, a, some kind of a gig that I could maybe just tour on the weekends and not go out for weeks and weeks on end. And one of the sessions I was doing for a, a, a soap opera, we were doing pre-records and some of the Beach Boy musicians and Jan and Dean musicians were on these sessions. And they said to me, oh, well, Jan and Dean is going out and they just do weekends. And I thought, oh, wow, this is an answer to prayer. So Dean Torrance uh, offered me the gig and I started doing it. And I just really enjoyed the guys, uh, enjoyed the music. And then from that, the, all those sessions were for General Hospital. And John Stamos was the star on that, who was also an aspiring drummer. And then he introduced me to Mike Love at the Beach Boys. So when they were unhappy with their previous drummer uh, or the one they were using at the time, I started doing Beach Boy dates. And I love that music. The, the, the second album I ever owned in my life was the Surfer Girl record. And I'm a big fan of harmonies and great vocals. And that was in Frank's band too. Boy, Ike Willis and Ray yeah. White 
when those guys would harmonize with Frank, I mean, it was just incredible. Well, all the original Beach Boy guys kind of broke up towards the end of the 90s. And I was just praying, man, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. You know, a lot of the studio stuff fell off for me. And then I just felt inspired to, uh, in fact, it was Dean Torrance's idea to start our own band, you know, just mm -hmm. do like a tribute band. And Dean said, I'll come out with you. And then I asked some of the original Beach Boys and David Mark said, yes. Al Jardine said, yes. Mike Love said, yeah, whenever we're not playing, I'll come out with you guys. So I started the, the Surf City All-Stars is what we're called. I started in 1999. Uh, Surf City was a number one hit for Jan and Dean, mm -hmm. but it was co-written and Brian sang on it. Some of the other Beach Boy guys played on it. So I thought it was perfect to call ourselves Surf City All-Stars because we were a combination of the Jan and Dean band and the Beach Boys band. So that's what I'm doing now. In fact, tomorrow we're getting inducted into the California Music Hall of Fame. Wow. wow. Isn't that amazing? That's so great. Congratulations. That's crazy. Yeah. So I've been doing that since 1999. And man, it's fun. We've got the touring down to where it's, it's just effortless. In fact, uh, two days ago, we were in Vail, Colorado, playing a private show. And uh, I, I'm not gone, you know, weeks and weeks on end. I'm able to dictate the schedule based on, you know, my personal life because I love being a family man and I love my relationships uh, that I have. You know, when you're gone on tour, you know, all those things are, are jeopardized, uh, I found. And so I've got such a beautiful balance. And I just say, thank you, Jesus. Every day I've got a beautiful balance of performing and being able to record and pursue other interests that uh, I enjoy doing. So. That's fantastic. My last question for you, you know, Frank Zappa has been gone, what, nearly 30 years now? We're getting real close to that number, if not that number. Yep. And uh, this is the first time that this era, the 1980 band, has been represented posthumously in a, in a release. So this is really the first time that the fans are going to get to hear your drumming with this group, full concerts, um, what that band was capable of uh, outside of the You Are You Is and the studio sessions that are released and maybe you know some of the live tracks here and there that Frank released. How do you feel about that, man, all these years later now that these, these concerts and these historical things are being uh, released in 2023? <laughs> well, I, I feel really good about it. I'm excited about it because that was probably one of the musical highlights of my career. That band was such a great band. And he was such an iconic composer, performer. And it's amazing, you know, and I was thinking about that. You know, one, one amazing thing about Jesus is that he's the king of resurrection. And I kind of feel like, you know, because I, I didn't spend a lot of time after I left the band, you know, playing Zappa material or being involved with uh, the fans or anything like that. I was so busy trying to, you know, just walk through that next open door to make a living as a musician, which in and of itself is miraculous. I mean, you know, I'm 68 years old and, and to still be able to make a living playing music, it's a miracle. So the fact that this has all come up so miraculously uh, after all these years, to me, has an incredible spiritual significance 
And it's not lost on me. And I hope when people hear it, that they'll feel the joy that we had when we were performing it, that they'll feel that unity that the band had. And there was, there was definitely a spiritual element, I felt, with the, all the guys in the band. Even though Frank was opposed to religion per se, he didn't have a spiritual aspect about him. The, there was supernatural things that, that happened even during that time when I was with him that he would acknowledge. So to me, it's, boy, it's such a, a exclamation point after all these years of the time I got to spend with him. And I'm glad that people are going to be able to hear it and share it because it was a beautiful experience for me. Mm. I, I loved working for him. We remained friends even after I was out of the band. So it's, it's great. I feel great about it. Do you remember the last time you saw or spoke with Frank? Yes, I do remember. Um, my wife is much younger than I am. And we've been married almost 30 years now. And we were driving from the Valley to Hollywood to do something. And I had mentioned to her, as soon as we crossed Mulholland, I said, oh, you know, Frank Zappa lives close to here. And uh, I recorded all the stuff at his house and it's really nearby. And I heard he was sick. And, you know, I really feel bad about it. I've been praying for him. And she said, well, why don't we go by? And I said, well, yeah, we got time. I went on his street. I remembered the house. I went up and uh, buzzed on the, the door because it was gated. And this voice comes over and says, uh, can I help you? And I said, uh, hi, my name is David Logman. I used to play in Frank's band. Uh, I heard he wasn't feeling well. I just came by to say hi. And the voice comes back and says, David, it's Frank. Come on up. So he buzzes me up. So he's sitting, you know, on, on one couch and I'm sitting right across from him. My wife is sitting right next to him. And I'm thinking, my wife has no idea who this guy is. And yet she's hearing these stories. And Frank says, you caught me on a good day. He said, uh, I've, you know, I've been battling this cancer and I've been having radiation and all this stuff. He said, it's, it just zaps my energy and I'm having trouble working. And at, he says at the time, he says, I've been working on the show that we did in Philadelphia. He said, we recorded that 24 track. And he says, I've been experimenting with some of the same songs, but different takes from different nights from the, the different shows that we all did together. And I, I think I told Joe, I think I told you the story. This is the only time that Frank ever gave me a compliment. And he says, usually I have to kind of VSO it or change the tempo to be able to edit stuff together because I like to edit different verses from different takes with different solos or whatever. And I can't remember the song he was talking about. Anyway, he says, your tempos were exactly the same. And he says, I, wasn't, I didn't have to manipulate anything. And he says, you're the only drummer I've ever worked with that I was able to do that with. And I thought, wow, that's cool. And, uh, and I just told him. It was my opportunity to thank him for hiring me and what a privilege it was and how I've got, you know, such great memories of it. And, uh, you know, and he, he liked that, you know. Mm. There, there was a lot of guys that left the bed on maybe not so great uh, <laughs> circumstances because, you know, if you could do what he asked you to do, he was great. But boy, mm. if you tried to rebel against him or there was any other issues, boy, he had no problem replacing mm. you, you know, yeah. quickly. So it, once again, it was, 
it was a beautiful thing. And uh, I was so happy that my wife got to meet him. And then, of course, now years later, she's starting to listen, you know, Valley Girl will come up or uh, Dance and Fool will come up, you know, and she's, well, what did you play on? You know, let me listen to that record. And it's cute. It's cute. And my son, who now is fully grown, gets to hear it. And uh, I can tell him to go uh, on YouTube, look up, uh, you know, the concert in Paris, 1980. There's a whole cool, real concert of that band uh, that people can see on YouTube. So that's the last time I saw him. And uh, we talked on the phone maybe once or twice after that. But uh, it was, I cherished that time that I got to record and perform with him. It's beautiful. Oh God, it's we lost him so so young and so early, and it's it's, it's such it's a shame. Such a shame. I mean, I'm 54 years old now. You know. And yeah, he, you outlived him. Yeah, he was 52. So crazy. Wow. I just, you know. I, yeah, I'm 51 now. So it's like you know, next year, you know, I will have lived as long as my idol, and I just you know. When you get to be around 50, I just can't believe like how young he was. Because yeah, if you think yeah. about it, when he was diagnosed, he was 48. So, you know, that's pretty young. And he'd been sick for a long time at that point. So, um, you know, for, for those of you out there, public service announcement time, get your colonoscopies and stuff, guys, because, uh, you know, you yeah. never know. So it just it just yeah. really really helps and um you know frankly we need all these zappa fans we can get on this in this world so you know scott you really know our demographic i do (laughs) zappa cast the official frank zappa podcast is created by and it's hosted by scott parker our producer is phil circus for the latest zappa news and more visit zappa.com we're also on instagram and twitter at at zappa until next time good night boys Boys and and girls